is The Witness Podcast with Carissa Lee, Alison Crogan, and I'm Robert Reed. Today we're talking about Quentin Letts and the controversy that has spiralled out around his comments regarding the RSC's casting of, um, well, I don't know what his name was, something Winter. Leo Ringer. Leo Ringer. Leo Ringer, a British Shakespearean actor yes. who was in a Royal Shakespeare production. And his quote, what he says that, uh, well, one of the things he said that um, sparked the outrage online. Well, it wasn't just online, but... Um, Seems to be on. the place where outrage goes, though, right? Well, <laughs> that's right. Liz. It's certainly where, where it gets most expressed. Yes, Quentin Letts, who's a well-known, he writes for the Daily Mail... Mm-hmm. So that says everything for a start. But he's been reviewing theatre for many years and he's a well-known Tory kind of critic, often to the point where he's kind of like a parody. I mean, I've, I've, <laughs> I've read his reviews for years. All right. <clears throat> In this particular case, he sparked outrage because of his review of a show called The Fantastic Follies of Mrs Rich in which Leo Ringer played a character saying he was miscast. Now, he may well have been miscast, but he goes on. Was Mr Ringer cast because he is black? If so, the RSC's clunking approach to politically correct casting has again weakened its stage product. So this has caused a lot of response. The RSC put out a statement reacting to this, saying basically this was unacceptable as racist comment. So we're going to just kind of discuss this as uh, what are the limits of criticism, what does it mean that criticism is racist, and I suppose we begin with the first question, was Quentin Letts actually being racist? I think so. I think the fact that he went straight there, so I think it's kind of easily answered really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's even before he gets to the invoking the great god PC, um, he, (laughs) he already has those kind of catchphrases and little trigger words that dog whistle to racism anyway, Absolutely. describing the actor as too cool for the role. And mm-hmm. was the other, he had some other kind of words that you go, I've only really heard those in the context of racist critique. So. Yeah, like oh, back when it was in talks that Idris Elba might play James Bond, they were saying he was too cool or too street or something, mm. like he's too trendy, so we better not cast him. It's like, oh, okay. Street mean, meaning black. That's yeah, just code think- for black. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Which is fundamentally, while it's also code for black, it also reveals not just the racism but the kind of cultural protectivism around particular characters as well because the argument ultimately becomes, well, a black person or an intersectional person or a cross-gendered casting, all of those things aren't okay because this role is traditionally white, male, straight, etc., what have you, as though that were actually what we're doing on stage, right, that Mm. it's a kind of museum presentation. It gets really volatile when you're talking about performance, doesn't it, because what you have on a stage or in any kind of performance is a human being, enacting some kind of role Mm. and I mean for many years women couldn't you know in in British um, theatre women couldn't be on stage yeah Mm. and so men played women's roles so there's always been uh, uh, Shakespeare in particular plays a lot on cross-gender casting because all these things are played out as performance so it's already a performance Mm. and this enters into all kinds of things about what performance is socially as well as in the theatre. I was going to say, with performance, it's almost as though there's this conditional suspended belief. Like there's, Mm. they go, okay, this is a show about ridiculous hijinks where, you know, some people are mistaken for one thing and mistaken for another because, you know, 
we've just changed scenes and yet we're not going to believe that someone is of a certain ethnicity because it's a, during a certain time period, like you were saying during Marion Potts' production of Othello, like they were saying, oh, but they didn't have Aboriginal people back then in that area. It's like, well, guys, come on, you do know that this is a Shakespeare, right? And people don't just <laughs> start breaking out into rhyming couplets. So, And no one yeah. particularly minds if they modernise Shakespeare and they're walking around with a mobile phone or yeah. all that kind of stuff or putting them in suits. Exactly. The amount of Belle Shakespeare I've uh-huh. seen in suits uh-huh. didn't have them back in Julius Caesar's day. Uh-huh. Not yeah. about a realistic representation. It's about what we're doing now and what this casting or what this design or any of these things reflect on the words as written. Yeah. Well, the first thing is that that anyone with black skin or well, Quentin Letts is reading that as racialized mm. for a start mm. in a way oh. that anyone with white skin is not being read as racialized. I like how he tries to justify it in saying, well, he's not funny, he's not this, he's not that. If it's because he was black that he was cast, well, maybe yada, yada, yada. It's like, come on, mate, I'm glad that you got to your original point eventually. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus also, if it's not funny, it's not the actor's fault, really. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to criticise an actor for their job, just the fact that he said he's not funny is very vague. He doesn't mm. actually go into detail as to how he wasn't right for the role. He just went straight to colour. Yes, it's, yes. Yeah, I think so that's the first thing. Thing that occurs and people get miscast all the time. I mean, it happens. Yeah, we, we've all all know examples of that. And people, uh, you know, mightn't perform very well all the time. That happens. But when it goes straight to because you're black, because you're a woman, blah blah blah, the question then becomes the essence as perceived of the person rather mm. than what their skills are, what what they're actually doing on stage, what's going on, which is a more complex response, then it's problematic. Yeah. But the constant thing on these kinds of discussions, which are obviously complex and we can only scrape the surface here, is political correctness. Yeah, well, I, I'm not 100% convinced that there is such a thing, really. Like, fundamentally, the notion of political correctness is really just a way of reframing debate so that it seems like you're the rebel in the room as mm. opposed to doing what the government says you should do, which leads us to where we wanted to talk about the notion of freedom of speech. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, these things are, are now totally wedded. So when I see someone talking about political correctness... I know that very soon they will be talking about freedom of speech and yeah. how, in particular, their freedom of speech is being constrained by some kind of, you know, thing they're not allowed to do anymore. point about political correctness is it's actually a term that was invented by the left mm. back in the day, um, to, which was used as a satirical term for people who were fundamentalist ideologues, basically, mm. And through the 80s and 90s, this got picked up by the right. Mm. And now it's a ubiquitous term in public discourse. That's kind of funny, the fact that they missed the point that it was meant to be a satire. No, that's right. (laughs) I mean, it was used by the left as a critique of people who were being sort of, you know, like, fundamentalist hardline. Yeah. So often the danger of satire, right, that if, you, if it's not understood, it just ends up reaffirming the consequence. Um, there was something about that recently. Who was complaining about satire recently and saying, oh, it was um, the- Wesley. It was Wesley and uh, oh. Declan arguing over, oh, and uh, Nakia as well, oh, arguing uh, over. Um, irony in theatre. yeah. Oh, okay. This is about Wesley's speech that he gave at the Playwrights mm. Conference, mm. in which he said he didn't want to see irony in theatre anymore. Mm. And he talked about Nakia, Louis' work, among others, yeah, mm. as being 
compromised in some way because they used irony I think or he, satire. It seemed like he was worried that there would be people in the audience who would not get it and would read the... Read it straight. The, yeah, exactly, read yeah. it straight, which I think, mm. I mean... Well, I mean, in a way it is meant... That's the amazing thing about her work is that it is meant to be... I mean, you know, it's taking the piss, but at the same time it is a very truthful thing that she's talking about. Mm. So, I mean, it is meant to be taken both ways and if people in the audience don't get it, I mean... No one cares about that when someone's going to see an Ibsen or a Shakespeare that they're going to miss the subtext. Yeah. So what's the difference? Well, so uh, while we're on the what's the difference, none of us really wanted to play devil's advocate for this <laughs> <Yeah>. idea. Um, <laughs> so Carissa found Tim Minchin playing devil's advocate for yes, us. Yes, yes. On Twitter, I'll read the quote actually just to give context. He had put on Twitter, For the record, I think free speech is a complex issue. I believe we must have the right to hurt the feelings of others. It's not nice, but is the place of freedom. Policing offensive, quote-unquote, is a very slippery slope. In end brackets, he states, easy for a straight white dude to say, I know. Um, yeah. Discuss. Well, <laughs> well, the first thing is policing, which is an interesting yeah. term, and that's mm. a term that turns up a lot. And, and the claim is always that it's almost without fail. I mean, I follow arguments about representation, particularly in writing for young people quite closely, where it's a very interesting and in-depth discussion, particularly about own voices and just the whole question of a white-dominated publishing industry. And almost without fail, when someone is pointing out the indisputable fact that, for example, you know, 3% of children's books feature black characters, things like that, there's a response that comes from certain sections. This is policing mm. what can be done in a free market or something like that, that by saying that there ought to be better representation, you are policing the limits of something. Mm. Whereas in actual fact, it's not policing that's going on. It's a critical response that's happening. Mm. And there is a difference. Policing involves batons and yeah. things like that and actual refusal of certain kinds of things. Mm. Whereas someone responding to a situation which they perceive is unjust is not policing. Mm. What is it? It is criticism. It's critical discussion. Yeah, I mean, like when you look at how like casting choices for like Australian TV shows or film, there's been a pretty white look, yeah, a uniformed white look within that show. People are quick to criticise that that's not what Australia looks like and that's not policing anything. That That's a fact. They've actually eliminated the proper representation. And I feel like that's the same thing with trying to be... I guess not politically correct, but not a dickhead when you're talking about Australia and, and when you're talking about things, you do need to be sensitive. You do need to sort of reflect upon the diversity that we have here. And that's not just having the opinion of a straight white dude. It just, it, that's not how we are here. Mm. Well, I suppose the real question is what is being protected? Like the whole thing about free speech is interesting and in how partial it is. Yeah, yeah, uh, and there, so, there are usually the people who will be the first to run screaming that they're being policed yes. when what they're getting is free speech back. That's mm. right. I mean, you yeah. know, the classic thing of using lawsuits to mm. repress certain mm. things. One of the most challenging things we have for free speech in Australia is our defamation laws. Mm. Oh, yeah. And the people, the free speech warriors, the people I think of as like that who are all privileged white dudes, mm. I have never seen them speak out about the necessity to reform our defamation laws because mm. they use those defamation laws, in fact, to suppress free speech. Yeah. They're very keen on suppressing speech in some instances. 
you know, trying to get people sacked from the ABC. There's so many <laughs> examples of that. <laughs> and I just find the cognitive dissonance there really incredible, except it's not hard to read if you understand it to be, in actual fact, just a protection of a certain kind of speech. Mm. Yeah, it's easy to sort of cry free speech when you're the one making the rules of what that means. Mm, yes. Yeah. And it's, yeah, that it feels like a lot of the time, particularly when I've, you know, had my keyboard warrior moments online talking to people who you just can't fix because you can't fix stupid. Yeah, they're the first to cry, freedom of speech, I'm allowed to have this opinion, do, do, do. It's like, okay, I'm entitled cool. to my opinion. Entitled, yeah, that's a good word, entitlement. Yeah. Well, yeah. they are. I mean, you're not stopping them. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Like, but you are it's responding worth... to them. You're trying yeah. to, you try to yeah. educate these people and it's like, ah, okay, okay, I should just stop <laughs> wasting my time. To bring it back to criticism. To bring it back to criticism, <laughs> yes, because I was just thinking about that. That notion of free speech as the freedom to hurt whoever's feelings, etc. Yeah. And often it becomes a part of a way of being able to silence a critic of your work, for example, or of someone's work. So it becomes that kind of knotty problem of like, well, if a critic can criticise, is that not necessarily hate speech, but is it destructive speech? Mm. And a misunderstanding or a misuse of rhetorical forms, right? So that mm. things like using free speech or freedom of speech, etc., don't actually represent what we think they represent. They represent tools that you can use to circumscribe freedom of speech. So they're the kind of particularly knotty uses of language that seem innocuous. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But so as a critic working to do that kind of work, to be able to unpack what is fundamentally a social experience, there are some tricky things to negotiate as a critic. There really are, yeah. Um, and... There has been a, well, I was going to say there's been recent experience of that, not so recent, but in the last 10 to 15 years, as soon as uh, we started thinking about this, it, uh, I was reminded of the MTC's production of The Birthday Party that Julian Merrick directed that was almost entirely cast with Indigenous actors, a fair to middling production, if you ask me, uh, of the sort of thing you would expect from MTC, with the exception of an almost entirely Indigenous cast, which did not get the greatest of response from the critics, including one of them sitting at the table here, <laughs> to which the director, Julian Merrick, responded on the MTC website, and an argument sort of grew up around Julian's accusation that the Australian critics were writing within the context of a kind of a phasic relationship to race. So no one immediately called it out and said, oh, well, this is interesting and the play is about, as opposed to, say, the critic who was sitting at the table with us today, who, uh, whose opinion was? Well... I just very quickly reread that review. <laughs> and yes, I said it was a very welcome case of cross racial casting, but I was very critical of Julian's production, mm. which I thought was terribly mediocre for reasons I said. This was from my reading of Pinter. Now, my critique of it, whether you agreed with it or not, was not predicated on the race of the people who were cast in the show. I did actually compare it with another MTC production that was on simultaneously, uh, which was The Man from Muckinupin, Dorothy Hewitt play that was directed by Wesley Enoch, which on the other hand I enjoyed enormously and I enjoyed the kinds of things that Wesley Enoch did with race within that, the casting and the direction of that play. So I, I was pretty annoyed actually to be accused of racism mm. in my response. So I had a response to Julian's response. This kind of stuff I love is that Julian refused to come to Theatre Notes and, and put it on and consequently his response has been lost. It's been yeah. taken offline. It's not on Theatre Notes. My response to his is. But this kind of discussion where you can open things, unpack, mm. 
you know, I sort of went and read it a little trepidatiously. Maybe it was a little racist. I don't. I still stand by that review. Yeah, I think I my think response was, was to this work of theatre, which you know, the most interesting thing about it was the cross-racial casting. Mm. But again, I had questions about why was the single white person the Jewish character who was evil, mm. which fed into another thing that was a bit of bit of a problem and I wondered if that had been thought about. So, you know, you, you walk into a minefield, but you have to walk into the minefield. You can't, on the one hand, behave like all oh, this is sacrosanct and you must not discuss it. You can't discuss how things work in a piece of theatre. You're a critic. Your job is to be have a critical response and that would be awfully patronising. On the other hand, you can't, particularly as a white person, blunder in there and not look at what race might do within the wider social context, mm. which is part of what you're discussing. It seems like the point of doing a play like that or approaching a play yes. in that way is to provoke that conversation. That's right. Yeah. And I felt like Julian was using his, after all, it was directed by a white person, yeah was using his decision to cast Aboriginal actors as a kind of shield mm. against criticism. Yeah. Which, again, you know, that's a problem. I mean, you say walking into a minefield as a critic. Well, so are performers, directors, mm. anyone who's putting on a production because if you ask a, a critic to come along and review your show, you're not saying, hey, come along and love it. You, they want feedback and they well, want... it depends, doesn't yeah, it? Just <laughs> I suppose, yeah. <laughs> In an idealistic <laughs> world. Yeah, but, um, but I don't know. I think the only... Like, I always bring this up because it, it just oh, it really, it really bugs me. That review I was telling you about when um, a white fella, he reviewed Richard Franklin's production of Walking into the Bigness and said that he didn't feel like it was an accurate portrayal or a, a very a very good way of telling a, an Indigenous person's story and had compared it to another show that was written by a white fella who had done that. And I think that there, that's when you're crossing a line. Yeah. I mean, if I think that's when you're starting to get into race country, just yes. like our, our, our mate. Quinton Letts, yeah. but um, but yeah, you were just reviewing the show as you know in its entirety, its direction, its production. You weren't saying, oh, it was a bit awkward that these guys were all black. You didn't even go there. So yeah. it's when you start heading into stuff that is a little bit, I don't know, like, oh, does that culturally make sense? And if you're a white person doing that, it's a bit not cool. But yeah, you were mm. just reviewing it as a reviewer. And, yeah, and I mean, you've got, to, and you've also got as re, as a review, you do have to question yourself. And there's nothing wrong with being with let's say in this case, my being questioned and pulled up and asked if that's the case. There may well be people who think otherwise, but as I said, I still stand by that review view because obviously also as you grow older, you become more sophisticated in how you understand things and learn yeah. a bit more. It's a different environment you know, now too. Like, I mean, it's it is, it is. as well. Yeah. And 10 years ago, th this was... No more charged an argument, but a differently inflected argument because we're yeah. still at Howard. We still hadn't had Sorry Day, and all of those kind of mm. things were still in yeah, the air no, too. Yeah, that's interesting. But yeah. it, it's still that thing of very much a English person coming in with an English text saying, "Well, I'm doing something for Indigenous people by you know letting them be in the play." Mm. And that's uh... in a way he might have already been on the defensive because you know he's quite an advocate for cross cultural stuff. Yeah, so he might have already just been at the ready. For that kind of criticism mm. so the second someone even gave an inkling of criticism he was like oh it's because everyone's black and because he was just ready to go yeah i mean it might you know we can't was. second guess that but yeah you know I, I and I, and obviously people will 
and should I actually I actually believe this as a critic that people should defend their work hmm. if yeah. they believe in it and so I you know there's no question of people shouldn't talk back because I totally believe they ought to they just shouldn't abuse people and I'm not suggesting that Julian did either but yeah but that does happen as well so then we're talking about a different idea of what criticism might be as a, as an exchange and a kind mm. of volatile and dynamic conversation rather than a judgment about where things are in a hierarchy of taste. Yeah. Well, again, it falls into a kind of pattern of recognising, A, what your cultural signifiers are. So it's easy for a white person to see a white play and go, I read it this way, this mm. is the natural way to read it, etc., etc." and changes to that if you're not prepared to interrogate them and go, oh, well, wait a minute, what does that say? And have yourself in the audience forced to think about a thing, I think you just blindly go into that aphasic nature of our approach to race that I think Julian was sensing. And I suspect not just in the critical community, but I feel like in the context of the company at that time too, there was some not exactly pushback, but I would feel like it seemed like at the time that it was a big thing for their company to be doing. Mm. And I feel like the company felt like they were taking a bigger risk than they really were. That's the case with all main oh, stage theatre when yeah. they do something faintly risky. Yeah, yeah. Like and then they become very risky. sensitive about yeah. it as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think also with the sort of being that defensive is also the audience's fear of something that isn't canon, like how we mm. were talking about Othello and we were talking about, yeah, you know, old mate saying that a black fella shouldn't be in that show. Yeah, there's always this kind of weird white idea of what should be within certain things like we were talking about earlier of Doctor Who in the cast of a female doctor like so many people were quick to say oh my goodness she's a woman we can't have that that doesn't work despite the fact that this doctor regenerates it's like there's no such thing as time lords there are actually female time lords in canon like there's a lot of reasons why why should this not be but I mean that's how colonialism works right that's how it centralizes culture and externalizes anything that it sees as not its own center of power yeah and it's also that thing of it works retrospectively Effectively. Mm-hmm. So there's been black people in Europe since Roman times. Yeah, yeah. And they've always been written out of the histories. They're in Mort Dartha. They're in the Arthurian legends. Mm. There's black princes and black knights and people just act like these are the epitome of whiteness. It's, mm. it's not the case. Which occurs to me is another kind of rhetorical device that protects and isolates certain kinds of culture as well. That notion of history being a specific story that we tell now mm. is not related to what history actually was. None of us were there. No. History is at best your best guess. But we, uh, well, not we, but I suppose that kind of hegemonic culture wants to make it so that the story we tell now is the story that it always was. Yes. It's yeah. not about. Which isn't great because whitefellas have always been the gatekeepers of history. They've yeah. always been the ones that have decided what, I mean, even the Bible, wasn't that put together by yes. a bunch oh, of yeah. white people? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's kind of problematic if you've only got one lens that you're being fed. Yeah, That's right. And yeah. all, all the things, I mean, if you read the Apocrypha, which is the Bible that was edited out, there's lots of interesting things in there, like mm. Ooh, priests were women. Hey, no <laughs> way. <laughs> so, a bunch of stuff. Oh, yeah. It's very weird. And when was the Council of Nicaea that they ended up doing? It was about 600 BC something or something? Like that. Yeah. yeah, BCE, I should yeah. say. Speaking of cross-cultural casting, really looking forward to seeing Belle Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra because that cast looks like it's marvellously diverse, which is something awesome to see in Shakespeare. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I think we all are. You know, there's this thing I noticed in the coming La Mama program as well, there's a 
production that is doing a verbatim production of The Bachelor, an episode of The Bachelor. Yes. But it's yeah. all intersectional and cross-racial and cast, which I think is a – until I heard that, I'm like, oh, my God, this sounds like a terrible idea. But now I'm like, oh, no, because if The Bachelor isn't a beachhead of, mm. of, of the patriarchy yeah. and seeing that radically undermined just through casting, I think is a fantastic way of interrogating yeah. something yeah. like that. Yeah, I was actually asked to be part of that. And oh, really? I, yeah, because I didn't have the time, but um, it sounds like it's going to be really cool. I definitely mm. yeah. would like to see that. I mean, the thing about all these questions is they have to be like in colorblind casting. What's that? Mm. That's like saying, well, you're all white. Actually, we're just pretending that you're, <laughs> everybody's white. Yeah. But, you know, the kinds of creative freedoms that can be found by doing this and looking at the kinds of diversities we have in our society and catching those energies and bringing them into our performances is huge. But it has to be done really intelligently mm. and with all those kinds of questions. You can't just reverse mm. a thing. Yeah, and if nothing else, it flushes out the racists amongst us. Yeah. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> you have been listening to The Witness Podcast with Carissa Lee, Alison Crogan, sound by Ben Keane, and I'm Robert Reed. Remember to go to witness.com and subscribe if you don't already, and we'll see you at the next podcast. I guess we won't see you, but, you know, you'll hear us. Yeah. <laughs>